Welcome to the inaugural episode of Tailgate Till May, a new college sports podcast for passionate college sports fans everywhere. My name is Stephen Gorgie, and I'll be your host, and I cannot tell you all how excited I am to be here talking to you today. This is something that I've wanted to do for a very long time, and the reason is really simple. It's that I am super passionate about college sports, just like you are. I grew up a huge Maryland Terrapins fan during a time when it was a really good time to be a Terps fan. When I was 12, Maryland had one of its best football seasons in history. That was a 2001 season. They had just hired uh, head coach Ralph Friedgen, and he came in, took over a very middling football program that had really often gone five and six or worse uh, during most of my lifetime, and came in and turned it around immediately. Uh, Maryland won the ACC that year. They suffered a lone regular season loss to Florida State. And I saw during that season how much fun college football could be. My college football experience up to that point had been watching big games on TV in faraway places, whether it be Ohio or Michigan or Southern California or Tennessee. That was what college football was to me. It was something I watched on TV. Then I got a chance to experience big-time college football up close and personal, and I really fell in love with, with the sport for life. I had the chance that year to go to the Orange Bowl in Miami with my dad. So it was the 2002 Orange Bowl. Maryland got smoked by Florida in Steve Spurrier's last game as the head coach of the Florida Gators. Uh, it, it wasn't even close, but it was an experience that I will never forget for the rest of my life. And, and like I said, that whole season just shaped my, my passion for college football. Fast forward a couple months to April of 2002, Maryland then goes and wins the men's basketball national championship, the first in, school's his, in the school's history. Now, you have to understand at Maryland, basketball is the sport. Football is great. There's a lot of Maryland football fans, not like there are in a lot of places, but there's still a, a passionate fan base. But basketball is the sport that, that people talk about 365 days a year. And to, to win that championship in 2002 with Gary Williams, an alumni head coach, uh, leading the charge was a really amazing thing. And I was 13 at the time and a huge fan and it meant a ton to me, and it really meant a ton to me that I got to experience it with my family. I was so lucky that my whole family, my, my mom, my dad, my sister, myself, all traveled to Atlanta to, to be at the Final Four. So in the span of a couple months, I got to go to an Orange Bowl and a Final Four. And I think right there and then is, is what cemented my passion for college sports for life. And it meant a lot to me, but what I always took from that Final Four was looking around at the people around me after that game who were, maybe they were in college, maybe they were students at the time, maybe they were in their, they were alumni in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Maybe they were just people who had put a lot of emotional energy into the team and rooted for the team for years and finally saw them come through and win the big game. Uh, I, I just saw this happiness, this joy from all these people around me. And I saw 
a lot of families like my family who were all there and, you know, making a, a lifelong memory as a family. I saw people who were friends. They'd been friends for years. They maybe went to Maryland together. Uh, they had, you know, kind of grown up together, sharing this as a, as a major milestone in their friendship, uh, uh, something that they would remember forever. And all the joy and happiness of, of that day is something that is, has always stuck with me and ha- has been really special to me. So fast forward a little bit, and uh, I continue to you know be a big Maryland fan, love Maryland football, love Maryland basketball. I eventually end up going to the University of Maryland, uh, making a lot of great friends there who are also huge Maryland fans. Uh, but as I get a little bit older, uh, my focus is shifting not only to just Maryland, but the kind of broader national college sports perspective, Uh, spending my Saturdays watching as many college football games as I can. You know, as a kid, I always loved watching as many games as I I could, watching big SEC games, watching Big Ten games. Uh, But as I got older and and I had the ability to do so, I started trying to actually travel to a new locale each year to seek those atmospheres, to see those stadiums, to see those college towns up close and personal. Um, and that is kind of how my, my love for broader college sports developed. So as we sit here today, you know, what I really want to do with this podcast is I want to build this community of really passionate college sports fans, and I want to build something that I myself would like to listen to. So what I can tell you is that every week, I'm going to try my absolute best to talk about the broader national college sports landscape in a way that's interesting, that's insightful, and that really echoes and mirrors a lot of the the conversations that we all have today with other people who really love college sports, whether that's friends, families, coworkers, on our favorite team's uh, message board, wherever it is that you're talking about college sports, that's, that's the kind of atmosphere and, and kind of how I want to, to operate here. I want to mirror those conversations. I want to bring those conversations to life. And I, I want to talk about things in a really interesting way. I, I want this to be a place where if you want to hear about what Imani Bates committing to Memphis means for for Penny Hardaway's Memphis team, you can hear it. Uh, If you want to hear about, you know, Heisman Trophy odds and who some of the best long shots are to to bet on for the Heisman Trophy, I also want this to be a place where, where you can hear that. So many people that are passionate about college football are passionate about college basketball and vice versa. And yes, there are certain times of the year, like in September and October, where this is going to be a really college football heavy podcast. We're going to be breaking down games. We're going to be talking about national storylines. We're, we're, we're going to be deep in football. But as the, the winter progresses and it's uh, you know November, December, January, we have some overlap between the two. Then we get really deep into basketball in February and March. Uh, so the content matter, the subject matter, is definitely going to flow with the seasons. But, but I do believe that, that this should be a place where we can talk about both football and basketball. Uh, when spring hits, we can talk a little baseball. Going to a super regional, a college baseball super regional, is one of the coolest experiences I've ever had. And I know there's so many fan bases out there that are just as into baseball as they are their, their basketball team. So 
that is the whole idea behind the name of this podcast and, and what this podcast is all about. It's Tailgate Till May. It's This is a podcast for people who like to get on campus in September and start tailgating for football. They stay through the winter where they're trekking through snow-covered parking lots uh, to go to basketball games, and then they're back again in the spring, tailgating for spring football, tailgating for baseball games. Uh, maybe you're a lacrosse fan. Uh, you're you know back on campus in the spring, uh, tailgating once again. So that's where that all comes from. You're the type of person who's going to start tailgating in September. You're not going to stop tailgating till the semester ends in May. And that's what I'm really getting at here. Now, I also think if you're someone who really loves college sports and follows college sports really closely, that you already know there are a lot of things wrong with the current NCAA setup. There's a lot of problems within college sports. And I certainly have many, many critiques of the NCAA and the way this system operates today. And I think that if you're someone who is really passionate about college sports, you are probably already having a lot of these conversations with your friends, your families, your coworkers, whatever, online, whatever. Um, So that's not something that I want to shy away from either. Whether it's the future of player compensation, equity within athletic departments, or even the future of the NCAA itself, these are subjects I'll also be talking about. So that's a little bit about me. That's a little bit about my vision and what this show is going to be about. I can't thank you all enough for for joining me on today's episode. So let's get into this week's episode. And what better place to start, what better time to kick off a college sports podcast than approaching week one of the 2021 college football season. Now, to me, in all of sports, I don't think there is any better way, any better format for starting a season than college football has. It is the absolute best. So let's run through all the other sports really quick just for some points of comparison here. So the NBA and NHL, I kind of put them in the same boat. Usually it's the champs raising the banner at home on like a Tuesday or Wednesday night in October, which is a doubleheader with another good game. But it just doesn't feel like it's a big deal. It's great if you're the team that won the championship the previous year and it's your team raising the banner. Uh, I the professional sports team that I probably care most about in the entire world. It's either the Washington Capitals or the Baltimore Orioles. And I got to see the Caps do it a couple years ago. And let me tell you, I was locked in on the opening night the next year as they raised that banner. But for the other 31 teams, I don't know that anybody really cares that much. you got to wait maybe another day or two for your team to play. And at the end of the day, it's one of 82. So it just doesn't have that same excitement to me uh, as some of the other sports, but especially not college football. So I would say NBA and NHL, they're out. Major League Baseball, there is something really special about a a baseball opening day. I'm super lucky that I've got to go uh, a few times as a kid to opening day in person. Uh, I've, I've gone a few times as an adult as well and there there is still just something special no matter how bad your team is and I just said a few minutes ago I'm a diehard Baltimore Orioles fan and so my team has not been very good for the vast majority of my life there's still just something kind of magical spring in the air uh you know you go out to the ballpark no matter how bad your team is it's still packed and and after a long winter I think that's a really appealing thing 
However, I still don't think it compares to college football. Baseball has tried to do like the international opening games every few years. And typically it's either in, I know it's been in Japan a bunch of times. I think it was in Australia one time, but because they're sending the team so far across the world, they did it like a week in advance. And I remember there was a bunch of years where I'm like, oh, I didn't even know these games counted. I didn't know there was real games going on right now. So uh, I think that takes away from baseball a little bit. And, and once again, just like the NBA and NHL, it's one of 82. It's one of 162. Uh, I liked when baseball did it more on a Monday. There was a time where they were like always doing it on a Monday. They would start maybe with like a Sunday night game, but then do everybody or most teams on that, that next Monday. But I think like still for the sport as a whole, it's not as exciting. I think it's more exciting if you're going to a game, you're going to see your team. Um, there, there's some magic there. But for me... I don't know. For baseball, I'm I'm mostly watching the Orioles. I don't know that I'm really tuning into a a Diamondbacks Dodgers game, even if it is opening day. So I think that's maybe not the opening day's fault, but a little bit more of like the the setup of the sport as a whole. So I would say Major League Baseball is out. College basketball did some interesting things for a little while. Um, they ESPN was doing the whole like 24 hours of basketball thing, which I I. It was kind of cool. It wasn't the greatest games in the world, but it was cool to be able to turn on your TV at 11 a.m. or 9 a.m. and see and see a basketball game. I really like what they've done recently with the Champions Classic. That's been like about 10 years now where it's Kentucky, Kansas, Duke, and Michigan State kind of always in, in some in some rotation of playing one another. They've recently started doing it the past few years on the opening day of the season, which I think makes the opening day of the season a lot better. But the thing with college basketball is the ratio of good games to absolute blowout games is just, it's just not, it's not good. You have a couple good games, but then you have the majority of your teams just playing teams that don't, of your, of your top 25 teams, playing teams that just, they don't belong, don't belong in the same gym as them. Um, and, you know, you might be saying, hey, college football has the same problem, but here's the big difference, is that in college football, you might have a power five team play a really good AAC team, like a few years back, Oklahoma played Houston and Houston won the game. Uh, Houston was a top 25 team at the time, but still, it, they're more of a, they're a G5, group of five team. Uh, you might have a MAC team, a good MAC team, go and, and play a Big Ten team. You might have, this year, we have Louisiana, really good team out of the Sun Belt. They're probably going to challenge for that, that group of five New Year's Six bid, and they're going to play Texas you will have those kind of matchups. Now, you also have some some not quite as good matchups as well, but like before Butler made the transition to the Big East and they were still in the Horizon League, it's not like you would ever see Butler go and play Ohio State to start the season or play Michigan State to start the season. Typically, you'd see Chicago State go and play Illinois or Ohio State or whatever other Big Ten uh, power you want to name. And I think that's the difference is that in college basketball, it's high majors playing low majors instead of mid majors. So I think there's just that potential for fewer upsets. I don't have numbers to back that up, 
necessarily, but that's how it feels, is that the, the mismatches are so large that you're just not getting any excitement of, of what makes college basketball great. You're not having nearly as many high-end matchups, although I said the Champions Classic has changed that to some extent, which has been really nice, but there's so many games that are just meaningless that are going to be 97 uh, a 97-67 game that I feel like it kind of takes away from some of that excitement. Uh, I think something that would be really cool for college basketball to do is if they just waited till Thanksgiving week and kicked off the entire season with all the big preseason tournaments. Uh, but we'll we'll save that conversation for, for another time. But college basketball, I think, has done some good things. Still, it's the ratio of good games to blowouts. Just, just isn't right for me. And then it's the fact that it kind of starts on a random Tuesday in November. Let's let's start it on a weekend. I, I think weekend would be cool, or at least th- waiting until that Thanksgiving week would be cool. Uh, the NFL. The NFL is close. I do really like how they have the standalone Thursday night game. Uh, like the NBA and NHL, it's it's usually the Super Bowl champion, defending Super Bowl champion, coming back and, and kind of getting that showcase game, raising the banner, having an event for their fans. So I, I like how they do that, just like the NBA and NHL does that. I, I kind of like the standalone game. It's usually a good game because they're, they're trying to make it a showcase game. And in the NFL, like college football, you know, every week obviously means a lot. Uh, but I think NFL opening week almost benefits from college football. The, the thing that's exciting about NFL opening week to me is that this is the first week of the season where you're going to have a full slate of games the entire weekend. So you're going to have Thursday night uh, NFL and college football. Sometimes college football kind of like stands back on NFL opening night. I'm not, I'm not sure about this year, but either way, you got a Thursday night game, you got the full college slate on Saturday, then you're going to have a full co- uh, NFL slate on Sunday. So I, I think that's really exciting, but you know, you've already had football back the previous week with college football. Um, so I feel like it's not as much about just the NFL coming back as it is having that entire slate of football. So Back to college football and why it, it has the best opening week set up is, you know, just the nature of the sport is that every week is so important, that every week just means a lot. Second, you've kind of had everybody salivating for football all offseason. Uh, this is your first taste of, of real football Um it's, you know, you, you have baseball going on over the summer. This year feels a little bit different because we had such meaningful sports in as, as late as July, and then we had the Olympics after that. So this year feels a little bit different, but I, I feel like a lot of times it's everybody's kind of just waiting, waiting to get through July and August to get back to, to college football. Um, and then I don't think it can be understated, the fact that it's a Labor Day weekend. It's a, a national holiday. It's a three-day weekend for, for most people. And you essentially have a four-day slate of games, starting with Thursday night. Then Saturday, you got the full Saturday slate all day, usually ending with some sort of primetime, non-conference, uh, neutral site showdown somewhere, whether it's in, uh, in Jerry's World, AT&T Stadium, or at Mercedes-Benz Dome in Atlanta. Usually you have something big on that, that Saturday night. Then there's often a Sunday night game, and then a Monday night Labor Day game. The first that I remember that 
Labor Day Monday game happening was back with Miami and Florida State back in like 04 or 05. I think around that time as well, I remember there was a Clemson-Georgia Tech game where Calvin Johnson made his debut as a freshman, which I will never, ever forget. Um, but I think that's around the time when, when that all started. And I think it's just a really cool setup where – you have the holiday, you know, people are excited, excited for the three-day weekend, excited for this, for football to be back, excited for this full slate of games, and then to top it all off, you have a lot of really, really meaningful big-time games, a lot of games that you might not see, whether it's a Pac-12 team uh, traveling to play an SEC team, uh, you know, whether it's a, a Big 12 team, there was Texas and Notre Dame on Sunday night a few years ago was was a huge game. You have these kind of big-time matchups that you might not always see on the opening week of the season, nonetheless. And then when you talk about the upset potential, no, I think one of my favorite all-time college football upsets, and I, and I think it goes for a lot of people, is App State beating Michigan to open the season. And at the time, App State was not yet even a FBS member like they are today. They're not a member of the Sun Belt. They were still what we called it D one AA at the time, and they were a D one AA power. But going into into the Big House and beating Michigan, I think is is you know part of what makes Week One in college football so special. Is you do have these massive upsets. And it's the massive upsets to go along with the huge games. And and I'll just never forget that App State game was my freshman year of college. I was at, um, I was tailgating for for Maryland's opener against Villanova. Uh, I was hanging out with some buddies from high school. You know, it was my first week of school. So one of my high school buddies, uh, we went to a tailgate that his his brother was hosting. His brother was a couple years older than us, uh, went to Maryland as well, and he was having a tailgate, so we were with them. And this was kind of back in the era before smartphones. I had a flip phone at the time. I can't remember if it had the ESPN app or not. Uh, I think at one point they the flip phones did get like a little ESPN app, but I know like either that year or the couple years before, the way I'd get sports scores is I would call a number. It was called one eight hundred tell me, and you would kind of go through the menu and you'd say like you'd say sports scores, college football. So I say all this to say it wasn't necessarily like it was right now, where you're at a tailgate everybody's on Twitter, everybody's on their phone, and you know what's happening exactly as it's happening. If there's something big's going on, you know it immediately. You know, uh, there were a handful of tailgates set up that had TVs, but I believe this was the first ever game on the Big Ten Network, so I don't think that many people in Maryland at the time even had the Big Ten Network or or knew how to get it or or where to get it. So this was a, a thing that, like, kind of just slowly made its way through the parking lot as everybody was tailgating. And I think that's just a really cool thing, like a really uniquely college football thing, at least college football in the, in the pre-smartphone era, is that you have this massive upset happening and it's making its way word, through word of mouth at this tailgate at another school. And I, I, what I imagine is that that was happening all over the country at the time, not just at Maryland. Um, and I, I just love that story. And I think it's a really, really uniquely college football. Now, would I, of course, love to be have been watching the game? Absolutely. But that just, just wasn't how it was at the time. So for my money, give me college football's opening weekend all day, every day over anything else. You got the upsets. You got the big time matchups. You got the holiday weekend thrown in. I just don't think it gets any better than that.
So let's dive into the week one slate. We had the week zero last week. We had a few games, but this is the real show. And where we have to start is the game that I am most excited for. I think a lot of people are or should be really excited for is number three Clemson taking on number five Georgia. Uh, Both teams receive first place votes in the AP poll. Clemson is a three or three and a half point favorite, depending where you look. This game is the primetime game, 7.30 p.m. Eastern time on Saturday night at a neutral site in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, Now, this is a really rare thing. I, I looked back at how many times since 1990 we've had top five matchups in week one. We've have had a lot of good week one matchups in the past. We had a lot of top 15 matchups, top 25 matchups, but it's pretty rare to have a top five matchup. So this has only happened three times in week one since 1990. And that was 2017. Number one, Alabama beat number three, Florida state 24 to seven. This was in Atlanta. This was the opening game of Mercedes Benz dome. It was a wild atmosphere and it was actually a really good game deep into the third quarter. Alabama led 10-7 deep in the third quarter with like maybe four and a half, five minutes left, I want to say, before special teams really did Florida State in. Uh, The other big piece of news to come out of that game was starting quarterback for Florida State, DeAndre Francois, got injured in the fourth quarter. He would miss the rest of the season, and Florida State would go on to have a really bad year. Uh, they finished the year six and six. They they did win their bowl game to finish seven and six. And then Jimbo Fisher would leave after the season for Texas A&M. And really, Florida State hasn't been the same since. They are now on their second coach since Jimbo Fisher. Um, and and this is a program that was really rolling up to that point, you know, entering that game as, as the number three team in the country. Bama would go on to win the national title that year as Tua came in famously to relieve Jalen Hurts in the national championship game against Georgia, and they won that game in overtime. Um, But the year kicked off for Alabama in Atlanta. The year ended for Alabama in Atlanta, uh, both times with wins. Final score, 24-7. to So the the game was interesting and close until late, but the the end of the third quarter, uh, for most of the fourth quarter, it became pretty apparent what would happen there. So I think that one, if we're going to say, did it live up to the hype or did it not? I would say partially. Uh, it definitely didn't fully live up to it. Anytime the final score is 24 to 7, a 17 point win, I, I don't think you can say it fully lived up to the hype. However, unlike some of the other games that we're going to look at, it, it was pretty competitive throughout. Uh, the next game we're going to get to is 2011. It was number four LSU taking on number three Oregon and AT&T Stadium in Arlington, Texas, better known as Jerry's World. So LSU won that game 40-27. to 27. Uh, This is the year that before Marcus Mariota for Oregon, Oregon would go on to have a pretty good year. They would go 10-2, and two, win the Pac-12, and, and win the Rose Bowl. So not a bad year at all for Oregon. And LSU, this is the, the famous rematch year. So where Alabama won the slog, or LSU rather, won the slog fest against Alabama in the regular season. And then Alabama won the rematch in the BCS National Championship game. 
Now, much like the Florida State-Alabama game, this was actually a pretty close game until deep into the third quarter. It was 16-13 LSU with eight-something left in the third quarter when freshman running back De'Anthony Thomas for Oregon, playing his first-ever college football game, fumbled. This led to a LSU touchdown, uh, which made it 23 to 13. And then on the ensuing kickoff, DeAnthony Thomas fumbled once again, led to another LSU touchdown, 30 13 LSU. And at that point, it was basically the ball game. Uh, so really bizarre how similar that was to the to the Florida State game where where Florida State uh they had some some special team miscues and, and fumbling issues but but a really similar outcome uh with the way the game played out or again like I said would go on to have a much better season than uh than that Florida State team did and LSU would would go on to lose in the national championship game this was the most points that any team scored on that vaunted LSU defense all year. So again, did 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 this one live up to the hype? Again, hard to say. Anytime you have a, a thirteen point final margin, that it did. Uh, but but it was a competitive game throughout uh, at least the first half and and into the third quarter. And then the last game that we have here is nineteen ninety nine. Number three, Penn State beats number four, Arizona, forty one to seven. This one, this game was in State College at Beaver Stadium, and this is the only game on our list that was actually a, a true home game. So, believe it or not, Arizona in 1999 was coming off a 12 and one season where they finished fourth in the AP. Arizona entered the year, like I said, ranked fourth, uh, and then Penn State came into the year number three. They were featuring uh, a defense that had. Courtney Brown and LeVar Arrington, they would famously go on to be the number one and number two overall draft picks uh, in the subsequent NFL draft. Uh, but Arizona, you know, came into the season really riding high. And you got to think about something with Arizona for a second. In March 97, they won the men's basketball national championship. Then in 1998, they brought back the whole team. Essentially, it was Jason Terry, Miles Simon, Mike Bibby, Michael Dickerson, uh, just a great team. They went 30 and five and lost in the Elite Eight, but still a, a great two year run for their basketball team under Lute Olson. Then in fall 1998, they went 11 and one in football, finished fourth in the AP. They go to the Holiday Bowl, they beat Nebraska, which in 1998, beating Nebraska in a bowl game is huge, and they beat future Heisman Trophy winner. Eric Crouch, nonetheless. So Arizona is riding high at this point coming into this game. Uh, they go into Happy Valley, and that, that Penn State team really puts it to them. Just an unbelievable Penn State defense. That team got off to a 9-0 start and as high as number two in the country before losing three straight to end the year. And over that 9-0 start, they only gave up 16 points per game. Of course, they had Brown and Arrington go number one and two in the draft. Uh, so a really good Penn State team there took down an, an Arizona team that was really uh, not the same after that. So I would say that one definitely did not live up to the hype. Uh, so those are the three games before Georgia Clemson that have featured top five teams in in week one. Uh, this game, I do think, is going to live up to the hype. It's a, it's a three-point spread, and... 
this is just a game that I think we really need to cherish. The amount of talent in this game is, is unbelievable. 24-7 Sports has a great feature. It's an overall, overall talent composite ranking. Essentially, uh, quantifying with each team's current roster, you know, how, how talented it is based on uh, their 24-7 uh, composite recruiting rankings. So, on the Clemson side, Clemson has 10 five-stars, five-star recruits on their roster, and they are number four overall in the talent composite. Georgia is number two overall in the talent composite, but has the most five-stars of anybody in the nation. 19 five-star recruits on their roster. Uh, that's more than Alabama, that's more than Clemson, that's more than LSU, it's more than anybody you can think of, and they are number two overall, second only to Alabama, and, and not by a whole lot. So the amount of talent on the field is astounding. And, and the amount of talent is astounding not only by recruiting ranking standards, but also by by really any metric you want to look at. If you want to look at all-conference teams, uh, if you want to look at preseason, all, uh, preseason all-conference teams, it's there. Clemson has five returning players that were all ACC in 2020, four of them on defense, and then they have eight preseason all-ACC pl- uh, players. The ACC only did first team for their all, uh, uh, all ACC teams for preseason. And Clemson players make up six of the 11 players on the defensive side of the ball. They also have two preseason All-Americans in wide receiver Justin Ross and then defensive tackle Brian Bressey, uh, who was at one point the number one overall recruit in the country in the class of 2020. And then, of course, DJ Wiangalele, we all know about him from last year, uh, you know, going in in Trevor Lawrence's absence, picking up that win over Boston College, performing really admirably in the loss to Notre Dame. Uh, but again, just another guy who we've seen what he can do on the field, but he was also a super highly rated recruit. He was a five-star recruit, number 10 overall. He was the number two quarterback behind Bryce Young in, in the 2020-24-7 composite ratings. So we got a lot of talent on the Clemson side. On the Georgia side, there's just as much talent there. They're returning returning. Two All-SEC players from last year, and they have 10 players on the preseason All-SEC team for this year. The SEC does do all three teams. They also have three three players on the preseason All-American team. And like Clemson, a lot of that talent and really the strength of this team, this Georgia team, is, is on defense. Uh, per Todd McShay's top 50 players to look out for in the, in the 2022 NFL Draft, there's four Georgia players on the list. Three are on the defense with outside linebacker uh, Adam Anderson, who's an exceptional pass rusher, leading the charge for them. Uh, they also have linebacker Nakobe Dean on the list and then defensive tackle Jordan Davis. So you can see in that top 50, three uh, Georgia defensive players. This is also the Georgia team that was number one in Bill Connolly's SMP. S&P plus on the defensive side of the ball for last year. So, you know, they do lose some pieces certainly from last year's team, but like I said, they've been recruiting at a phenomenal level and and they bring back a ton of talent still. Uh, So, you know, there is a lot of talent on the field and I think we really all need to just appreciate the amount of talent that's there. Uh, Can't forget about JT Daniels leading the charge for Georgia's offense at quarterback. 
Uh, I think a lot of people know the story behind JT Daniels, but he was the all-everything five-star recruit that went to USC. He reclassified uh, to get to USC a er- year early. So in, in his class, he was only behind Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields, according to the 24-7 composite. He had a really nice season uh, his first year with USC. Then he got hurt. Keaton Slovis took over the job. He transferred to Georgia. He... Um, did not play in the early part of last season as he was recovering from his injury still. Even once cleared, he he was not playing behind Stetson Bennett. Eventually, he did come in and kind of change that whole complexion of the Georgia offense. And I think for me, that is one of the, the things to look for for Georgia in this game is what does the offense look like? What are they willing to do? Are they really kind, kind of willing to unleash JT Daniels and and modernize this offense. I know a lot of Georgia people. I lived in Atlanta for seven years. And to a person, the complaint that they will all have with Kirby Smart's tenure at Georgia is that this program operates in terms of their offense like it's 1997 in the SEC where they're going to try to win games 17 to 13. And that's just not what works in modern-day college football. I saw a quote from Kirk Herbstreit earlier this week about this game that was essentially along the lines of, this game's going to come down to whoever wins in the trenches, and it's going to come down to whichever quarterback doesn't make a mistake. And while I think that may all be true, you know, that's what most football games come down to, I would submit that if Georgia and Kirby Smart and Todd Munkin are thinking about the game in that way in terms of how do we limit the mistakes JT Daniels makes, they might win this game. They might not win this game, but they are not going to win a national championship if that is the mindset that they have in this game or in this season. Georgia has a great defense. They they have the defense to win it all. What they've been lacking uh, is... The, the offense and, and the, the quarterback to win it all. Now, you can talk about how they had Justin Fields and didn't know how to utilize him properly, and then, uh, you know, how that really cost them. So I'm not saying they haven't had the pieces, but they haven't utilized the pieces properly. And JT Daniels, if they can utilize him properly, they can go and win a national championship. And, and I think it's going to be really interesting to watch whether how they approach it and what mindset they take. Just as a reminder, last year, in the Florida game, that was Stetson Bennett's last game starting, he finished as the high passer in that game for Georgia with 78 yards. 78 yards. The next game against Mississippi State, and now we have to caveat that, that it is Mississippi State, and they gave up a lot of yards to a lot of people last year. JT Daniels threw for 401 yards. I mean, that's a drastic, drastic difference. So if Kirby Smart and Todd Munkin decide they want to just, you know, pound the ball all night with 
Zamir White, which is a you know good option. He's a, a great running back, and you can do a lot of damage uh, kind of relying on him. Then they might win the game. They might be able to rely on their defense, but they are not going to go out and win a national championship in an era where Nick Saban openly says it's not enough to have a great defense anymore. And you've seen maybe the best college football coach of all time, I think the best college football coach of all time, who is a a defensive mind, say, I need to find ways to score 50 points a game if I want to win the national championship. If Kirby Smart and Georgia can't adjust to that, then they are not going to win a national championship. So I think that, for me, is the biggest thing to watch on Saturday night. And it might tell us more about the the season as a whole than anything else, is what mindset does the Georgia coaching staff take with their offense? We know they have the defense, but what are they going to do on offense? I've heard a lot this week about the injuries for Georgia and, and the players that they're missing. And, and they're definitely missing some talent out there. Um, uh, George Pickens, their top receiver, their top receiver um, from a talent perspective, from a production perspective, from a draft um, perspective, he's on that, that top 50 list that Todd McShay put out that I mentioned. He's out. He was expected to be out. Um, and, and they're hoping that he will come back at some point this year, but they're, they're not sure yet. Uh, Eric Gilbert, he is a guy who was a tight end at LSU last year, outstanding playmaker. Uh, I actually saw him live in high school and just an unbelievable, a man among boys at, at the high school level. He transferred from Georgia, uh, from LSU to Georgia. He was going to play wide receiver. He has not been with the team since early in earlier in fall camp, dealing with some personal matters and will not be playing in the game against Clemson. So uh, w- without two really talented uh, weapons there for JT Daniels, and then it looks like they'll also be without their tight end, Darnell Washington. However, I have talked a lot today about how well Georgia has recruited. And despite the talent they are missing, they still have a ton of talent, if not a ton of production within their wide receiver core. They have three players, three receivers, who were in the top 100 in 24-7's recruiting rankings in the 2020 class. So all sophomores now. They were all top 100 players. Number 55, uh, Marcus Rosemi Jackson. He was hurt versus Florida last year. He only had a couple catches last year, but he was the number 55 overall player in that class. Arian Smith, the number 58 player in the class. And then Jermaine Burton, the number 82 overall player in the class. They also have Kyrus Jackson. He had 36 catches last year. And in 2018, he was the number 130 overall player in the class. So when you recruit like Georgia does, missing a few players, that's why you recruit like Georgia does. Because if you're missing a few players, it will not bite you because you have the depth to withstand these injuries. So uh the, those players, those weapons being out for Georgia does not concern me nearly as, as, as much as it does other people. And I don't think that's an excuse either for JT Daniels to kind of be constrained and for, for Kirby to default back to run the ball, run the ball, run the ball. So that's, that's kind of where I stand on, on what I'm looking for in this game. From the Clemson side of things, I mean, I, I think, you know, you, you know, 
more of what you're getting with Clemson. Uh, we talked about DJ Weongalele a little bit. Uh, I think he is going to be uh, have a great year. I think he's going to be very successful. I think there's a chance. We talked about LeVar Arrington and Courtney Brown going uh, both in the top two from Penn State back in the 2000 draft. I think there's a, tra- uh, a chance that uh, these two guys on Clemson, uh, Brian, Brian Bressy and DJ Weongalele, go one-two in the 2023 draft. That should just tell you how much talent's on the field. I would not be surprised at all if either of these teams win. I think this is going to come down. I think this is going to live up to the hype, unlike some of the games in the past. But I really do think at the end of the day, this game is going to come down to whether Kirby Smart takes the reins off the offense. If he does, I think Georgia wins. Uh, I'm betting Georgia plus the three points. Uh, If he doesn't, I think that that Clemson wins. So that's where I stand on this game. I'm super pumped for this game. You know, the other thing everybody's kind of talking about with this game is does it, how does it impact the playoff race? Everything we talk about these days in college football is all playoff, playoff, playoff. Uh, I think either way, if the game goes the way that I expect it to, which is a close game, a one-score game, either one of these teams can still make the playoff. If Clemson loses a close game to Georgia, they go and run the table in the ACC, which I suspect they will, with North Carolina really being the only team that would worry me at all in, a, in an ACC championship game. I think they, they still have a great chance to make the playoff. Uh, for Georgia, Georgia's got three games, three neutral site games, and I think they need to win two out of the three. They got this one against Clemson and Charlotte. They got the cocktail party in Jacksonville against Florida. And then they got the SEC championship game, which I am assuming is going to be against Alabama, but could be against Texas A&M, theoretically. Could be against another uh, SEC West team, theoretically. But if they win two of those three games, then I think that they're going to be in the playoff, no, even if that loss is to is in the, uh, in the championship game to Alabama or another SEC West team. Now, what gets kind of interesting would be if they were to lose to Florida, lose a tiebreaker to Florida, and not make it to that third championship or that that third neutral site game. That's where it gets kind of interesting. But I think for now, I'm less concerned about how this impacts the championship race. I think we'll find that all out in due time. What I'm more concerned about, as I've said, ad nauseum is Georgia's approach to this game and really just enjoying all the talent that's on the field. So my pick is Georgia plus three. I hope they unleash the offense and I hope we just really get a good look at all the talent that's on the field for this game. Let's finish out this week's show with what I'm watching and what I'm betting. Let's start with the Friday night slate and the game I'm really interested in watching on Friday night is Virginia Tech hosting number 10 North Carolina 6 p.m. Eastern time on ESPN. North Carolina is a really interesting team to me this year. I really like Sam Howell and watching him. He's he's a fun quarterback to watch. Mac Brown has come back and really, with everybody laughing at that hire when it was first made, put together a really nice program in a really short amount of time. Uh, North Carolina really put it on Virginia Tech last year. I know they have high hopes for this year, so it's going to be interesting to see how they come out on opening night and, and what they can do in a conference road game. If there is one team that I think can even think about upsetting Clemson in an ACC championship game, 
it's North Carolina. Uh, I like North Carolina better than Miami right now. I don't think either of them are anywhere close to Clemson's class. Clemson is in a class of its own in that conference. Uh, but I, I think North Carolina is a team on the rise, and I'm interested to see how they start this season. Let's move on to Saturday with the noon slate. Okay, so on TV number one, if you have a two-TV setup, uh, this could be helpful for you. Uh, but on TV one, I'm going to have number 19 Penn State traveling to Camp Randall to take on the number 12 Wisconsin Badgers on Fox in a Big Ten conference matchup on opening weekend. Uh, Penn State looking to bounce back after a pretty tough 2020 season. But I really want to get a look at Graham Mertz, Wisconsin's quarterback. Everybody remembers that sensational start to last season. Um, So really looking forward to him being able to hopefully get a full season under his belt and see if if he's the real deal. Wisconsin has a great defense like they always do, and they're hoping to finally, finally be able to break through and win the Big Ten. On TV2, I'm going with either Western Michigan traveling to Michigan to take on the Wolverines or Stanford and Kansas State in Arlington, Texas. Western Michigan has a really good offense. Michigan did not have a very good defense last year. Everybody knows what's going on with Jim Harbaugh there, where he is very much on the hot seat. So interested to see if uh, the Bronx can put a little scare into the Wolverines. And then with the, the neutral site matchup, you know, it's two power five teams. Stanford and Kansas State have both been kind of middling. Uh, David Shaw is trying to get things back on track where he can get that program back to being a consistent eight-win program like he had it for so long. Uh, Kansas State's really interesting to me because Chris Kleiman enters his third year, a really impressive first year. Last year, a starting quarterback, Skylar Thompson, went out, and they were really never the same after that. But Chris Kleiman can say something that not a lot of folks can say and nobody can say right now is that they've beat Oklahoma the past two seasons. So that's a big feather in his cap. And I, and I think he is going to get that program really going the right way out in Manhattan. So, um, you know, huge non-conference matchup, both programs trying to, to get their season started off on the right foot. And uh, this is, is going to be a close one. So I'll, I'll be monitoring that one as well. Moving on to the 330 slate, we have number one, Alabama versus number 14, Miami in the Mercedes-Benz Dome in Atlanta. That's going to be on TV one for me. Got to get a look at at Alabama breaking in a new quarterback in week one. Uh, Derek King is always worth the price of admission, Miami's quarterback. I think that Alabama eventually does pull away and wins by a couple touchdowns, but I'll, I'll keep that on TV one until they do. TV two, there is going to be a lot of games vying for that TV two slot. We have number 17, Indiana at number 18, Iowa on big 10 network in yet another big 10 conference matchup. We got number 23, Louisiana traveling to Austin to take on number 21, Texas. Uh, That could be a potential upset. If you will, there, Texas is about a a nine, nine and a half point favorite, depending where you look. Um, But Louisiana coming off a great season out of the Sun Belt. I think they can they can potentially pull off that upset. And then another game is West Virginia traveling to Maryland. So two programs with still relatively new head coaches in Neil Brown and Mike Slock, Mike Loxley, an old rivalry, renewing an old rivalry. Uh, both programs looking to get kind of back on on the right foot. And I think this will be really big uh, for the team that wins in in kind of setting the tone for the season. Moving on to the night, 7.30 Eastern time. TV one is the, the game that we spent a bunch of time talking about today. Number five, Georgia at number three versus number three, Clemson. 
from Charlotte on ABC. That is the game of the week. It might be the game of the season, and can't wait to sit down and watch that one for all the reasons that I mentioned before. TV2, number 16, LSU, traveling to the Rose Bowl to take on UCLA. Always interesting anytime you have an SEC team headed out west. Uh, UCLA looked really good last week against Hawaii, blowing out Hawaii. LSU had a really rough 2020 season as the defending champs. Uh, they're looking to kind of steady the ship, uh, especially on the defensive end after last year. So um, it'll be interesting to see if they can do that. And then with UCLA, Chip Kelly is trying to finally get that program where he wants it to be after a couple seasons. And this would be a huge win for them and really kind of change the conversation and the complexion of the Pac-12. So I will definitely be keeping my eye on that one. And then to end the night, if you must, uh, 10.30 p.m., BYU versus Arizona in Las Vegas. I don't know that I'm, I'm super interested in this one, but that, that's the best one if, if you're going to be up uh, watching games late at night. So that's what I'm watching this week. As far as what I'm betting this week, um, I got about seven or eight games for you here. You can find all my picks later today on Twitter at Gorgon Sports. I'll post everything there. So before I get into my picks, I'm going to mention S&P Plus a lot. Uh, S&P Plus is Bill Connolly of ESPN's system for essentially measuring efficiency. As he puts it, to put it in a single sentence, it's a tempo and opponent-adjusted measure of college football efficiency. So I'm going to be mentioning that a lot because I love to use that in, in my gambling analysis. So starting off Friday night, taking Charlotte plus 6.5 versus Duke. S&P Plus has Duke as only a 1.7-point favorite. A lot of sharp money on Charlotte, according to Action App. I just think Duke's trending the wrong way as a program. Chris Reynolds, Charlotte quarterback, is back healthy after, after suffering through some injury issues last season and playing hurt. And then Will Healy, Charlotte's coach, I think is a real up-and-comer in the industry. He's trying to get that program uh, going the right way. I think he can make a big statement win potentially here, beating the ACC team. So my money's on Charlotte, plus 6.5. Going to Saturday, I'm going with Kansas State, minus 3 versus Stanford. Uh, S&P Plus doesn't back me up here. It only has Kansas State by... 0.7 points, but I just like the fact that Kansas has the most exposed, uh, Kansas State rather, has the most explosive player on the field in Deuce Vaughn, and um, I'll take that. I'll take Skylar Thompson coming back, and uh, Kansas State minus the three. I'm going to take Fresno State plus 20 and a half at Oregon. Fresno State has a really good offense. Uh, Oregon has the Ohio State game the next week that they've kind of marked on their calendar. So I like that for a couple reasons. I can see uh, Oregon kind of backing off maybe at the end of the game, getting some rest for guys. They don't want to necessarily get banged up for the Ohio State game. That might be a good opportunity for a backdoor cover for Fresno. Uh, I also like the fact that they might not want to show too much in this week one matchup ahead of that Ohio State game. And then there's always the the chance that Oregon's not quite mentally ready and, and doesn't have their full focus on this game, thinking a little bit ahead to Ohio State. So I like uh, Fresno State plus 20 and a half there. Uh, next game I have is Marshall minus two and a half at Navy. Navy was atrocious last year. Navy is as bad as we've seen them in a very long time. They were 102nd in S&P Plus last year on offense. They are they lost a ton of production from an already bad offense. And Marshall had a really good defense last season. I expect them to be really good again this year. Marshall did undergo a, a head coaching change, but S&P Plus has Marshall by a seven point as a seven-point favorite in this game. Uh, the line is only Marshall minus two and a half. 
I think anytime you're using a metric that you really trust and it's over a score different from the line, you have to strongly consider taking it unless there's an obvious reason like an injury, uh, something along those lines that would explain it. But in this case, there's there's nothing along those lines. Marshall just seems to be the much better team than Navy they were last year. I think they're going to be again this year. And I think uh, Marshall minus two and a half is a, is an easy play here. Um, moving on, the next game I like is I really like the Maryland money line. Maryland plus 120. Uh, against West Virginia at home. Maryland last year was really good against the pass. West Virginia had uh, better success passing the ball than running the ball. And so I think that that plays really well in Maryland's favor. West Virginia does have a really nice defense, and it'll be interesting to see how Maryland's offensive line, which is, I think if you ask anybody, not the strength of this team, holds up against against that defense. But I like Maryland to defend the pass well. I like Maryland to be able to throw the ball with Talia Tungavailoa coming back for his uh, second season as a starter at Maryland. He's been the most impressive quarterback we've seen at Maryland in quite some time. He has a lot of weapons at receiver uh, surrounding him. So I, I like Maryland to, to be able to throw the ball. I like Maryland to be able to defend the pass. And I think Maryland ultimately comes away with the win here. And, you know, I'm somebody who really doesn't like to bet on their own team. I rarely, rarely, rarely do it. So uh, if I'm doing it today, you can really feel confident that I really feel confident. All right, two more games here. Uh, Missouri and Central Michigan. I'm going over 60 here. S&P Plus doesn't quite agree with me. It has a total at 54 and a half. However, Central Michigan was a team that allowed a lot of explosive plays last year. They could be explosive at times themselves. There was just a lot of variability and uh, a lot of inconsistency with that team, which led to a lot of crazy things happening. The average total score in the games they played last year was 61 and a half, and that included a 96-point game and a 65-point game. Uh, So very much within the realm of possibility. And then on the Missouri side... Uh, Their full game totals averaged 59 points per game. That included an 86-point total, a 98-point total, and an 83-point total. And you have to keep in mind, that was against an all-SEC schedule as well. So I think we're going to see a lot of big plays. I think we're going to see a lot of points in this game. I know it's supposed to rain in Columbia, Missouri uh, tomorrow for this game. And I I often think rain can actually be good for for higher scoring points, at least to fumbles it leads to slipping it it leads to big plays uh oftentimes so I really like that one and then my last game is I'm going to take the Ohio Bobcats on the money line against Syracuse S&P Plus has Ohio as a seven point favorite in this game uh if you can get even money on the money line I think that's a great play on the Bobcats head coach Frank Solich did abruptly retire in the offseason However, uh, one of the coordinators is is taking over, so I expect a lot of continuity there. Ohio has just flat out been a better team than Syracuse over the past two seasons, and I, I really expect that, the, that to continue. This reminds me a lot of these Coastal Carolina-Kansas games that have happened the past couple seasons where it just seems so obvious to take Coastal Carolina because they were the better team, but you know there was still some hesitancy because it's a Sunbelt team. Um, versus a Big 12 team, and I, I think that might be a little bit of the case here, but I'm definitely riding the Bobcats here. Uh, if you can find uh, even money on the money line, 
definitely take that one. Again, you can find all my picks at Gorgon Sports on Twitter. That's the show for today. Inaugural episode in the books. I really enjoyed hanging out with you all and, and talking some college football today. I hope you all did too. Enjoy the games this week, everybody. And I will talk to you all next week.